0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored
1: by Lidos. At Lidos, we believe today's complex health challenges call for revolutionary problem solving. From digital transformation to life sciences, Lidos makes the world safer, healthier, and more efficient.
2: On November 6th, the Washington Post Live hosted Veterans in America, an event focusing on issues facing today's 18 million veterans. THE TRANSITION FROM MILITARY TO CIVILIAN LIFE POSES MANY CHALLENGES. SOME ARE SOCIAL, SOME ARE CULTURAL. IN THIS SEGMENT, TWO VETERANS TALK ABOUT THEIR EXPERIENCES IN CONVERSATION WITH A WASHINGTON POST REPORTER WHO IS ALSO A VETERAN. LET'S LISTEN.
0: GOOD MORNING. Uh, I'M ALEX SORTEN. I'M A REPORTER HERE AT THE WASHINGTON POST. Uh, I'M JOINED HERE BY KAYLA WILLIAMS. SHE IS THE DIRECTOR OF THE uh, MILITARY VETERANS AND SOCIETY PROGRAM AT THE CENTER FOR NEW AMERICAN SECURITY. Uh, we also have Elliot Ackerman. He is an author and uh, Marine Corps uh, infantry officer veteran. And we have, uh, I think, seven combat to- deployments between all three of us, though Elliot is really pulling it in with uh, with five, really raising the average. Um, so w- we just checked out that video there, and there was an interesting sort of discussion there um, about this divide. And it's something we're going to talk about today. Um, what's really interesting with this dynamic, I think, is, you know, As as veterans, we have been on these panels, we have watched these panels uh, with a lot of consternation about why can't we bridge this, this gap? And I think there's a lot going on in that discussion, but it's also very closed to the veterans community, and we really don't have this out in the open and therefore nothing gets done. And we also have lawmakers come in and say, you know, we have to do something for veterans, and it's just goes down the rabbit hole. Uh, so we're just going to get into some of the nitty gritty of what we talk about in our community and some of the more counterintuitive ideas of, uh, of how we talk about veterans in society, how we talk about our relationship with civil society. Um, and if you have any questions uh, in the audience or online, uh, you can go on uh, Twitter and you can ask us questions with hashtag post live and we'll get to them. So first, uh, Kelly and Elliot, I wanna talk about what we saw in the video about this gulf or this divide or this bridge that we have between veterans, the military and civil society. What is that exactly? Could you kind of define what the feeling is amongst, uh, amongst veterans and uh, active duty service members and also what is sort of missing from that discussion?
1: I think we have seen some survey data that shows that uh, service members and their families feel that civilians don't understand them. And there is some echo of that among civilians as well. And I'll be honest, when I first got back from Iraq and when I first left active duty and became a civilian again, like I leaned into that. People would say, well, I just can't imagine what you went through. And I was like, you're right. If your boots weren't on the ground, you can't imagine. And it took me a long time to step back and say, I'm exacerbating the problem by owning that and as as one of the folks in the video said like people should feel free to ask and then we as veterans to the extent that we're comfortable with it have an obligation to like meet them halfway and be willing to tell our stories and share our experiences because if if folks can imagine you know my kids love the movie wall-e if you can imagine sentient robots like surely you can imagine what troops are going through uh, on this planet right now
2: yeah yeah, i think that video kind of speaks to Uh, desire for connection and so we talk about the civil military gap I don't think there should be any surprise that there's a gap the gap was hardwired into the these wars meaning the 9-11 Wars by their very design and what I mean by that is like listen if we look at the history of our nation and how we've gone to war there has always been a construct in how we go to war and what I mean by that is you know you can look at the the Civil War the very first income tax in this country and the very first draft came out of the U.S. Civil War, and that was, how we, that was how we constructed that war. The Second World War, right? National mobilization, war bond drives. The Vietnam War, characterized by a very unpopular draft. These wars have been characterized by two things. They've been funded through all deficit spending, so there's been no war tax on anyone, and they've been fought with an all-volunteer military, Terry. So we've outsourced the wars to a very specific segment of our society so why are we surprised that there's this gap by design these wars were constructed to and that's the size american society to them and then we sort of scratch our heads and say wow isn't it amazing these wars have gone on for almost 20 years they've been designed to go on for 20 years the reason they've gone on for 20 years is not because we haven't been able to find the exact policy alchemy for you know how to defeat the taliban necessarily or how to get rid of islamic extremism in and around iraq and syria they've been on, gone on for 20 years because they've been fought by an all-volunteer military and funded through deficit spending and one of the residuals is that we have this massive civil military divide
0: and um, so I I think what's interesting too is that since the active duty military force and and the Guard and Reserves it's such a small segment of society there is a large population doesn't know anyone connected to the wars and you know when I went to uh, community college after I got out of the army like I was Typically, the only veteran in my classroom, and that led to a lot of interest, a lot of intrigue, but also a lot of sort of exotic kind of beliefs. And I think what's interesting about it too is, you know, when we think about how we honor the military or veterans, it's usually in the span of like halftime, you know, uh, uh, celebrations or flags on the field during the Super Bowl, and then we kind of go back to it. So, Ellie, you're saying that you know we shouldn't be surprised that there's sort of this consequence where there's a disconnect. Uh, but what are the things that um, civil society does that exacerbates that and makes them worse than if we just came home, went back to work and didn't talk about our service?
2: Well, listen, I think, listen, like I've had asked the question, do you like when people say thank you for your service? And, I, right. and my response is always like, absolutely, listen, there's someone and that's someone just reaching out saying, I don't know how to make a connection, but I want right. to connect with you. So I, you know, I think that's fantastic. But I think one of the results of the construct of these wars has been the fetishization of the US military and then people who are outside of the military feeling very uncomfortable about offering opinions and being overly deferential to the US military, which has all sorts of negative consequences when it comes to making, making policy and, and you know, our, our previous panel about how do we deal with veterans. Um, so I think this is really a moment where we should be as a nation reflecting on how we got here is this the healthiest relationship for a republic to have with this military? Mm-hmm. And I would argue it's kind of not because we are operating in a sphere of real moral hazard where also it's become very easy for us in our minds to go to war. You know, we look at, you know, the saber rattling in North Korea that we've seen recently or even with Iran, and it's sort of, it's skewed our perception of what war is. So war that's a thing that happens over there and it's done by people who decide they want to go do it. But that doesn't affect me and my family so I think you know this is really a moment we should be asking ourselves if we're gonna to go to war do we need everyone to have skin in the game
1: and to reflect a bit the diversity of veteran opinions I personally don't like being thanked for my service it makes me a little uncomfortable my passive-aggressive response is to like thank TSA agents at the airport um, for trying for their part in trying to keep us safe but I think that the um, another tendency that complicates this and doesn't necessarily help is this assumption that Veterans are inherently more ethical or moral like we need more veterans in office because they're so Ethical and they're gonna be able to rise above I'm like eh, it's not necessarily true We do have you know service members in prison because they've committed crimes like Choosing to join the military doesn't inherently make you like a better human being across all fronts throughout all time And we do need to really question this as you call it fetishization of the military.
0: Yeah, and sort of like this duality I see that we're sort of, you know, there's the, the public and you know media, Hollywood, um, politicians. They sort of reach for two things of way to describe us. You know, it's either the hero, like the the lone mm-hmm. survivor, you know, lionization of this epic hero, and then once we take off the uniform, it's the downtrodden veteran, the unstable one, and you're broken. And, and, and broken, and you know that's sort of infused in like the video we saw. Is like this sort of like kind of undercurrent of this trauma that we carry, and maybe we don't even carry trauma at all. But that's what's, what's supposed of us to do. Um, but veterans do once they navigate the world. You know, when they they go to college, they wear like the camouflage backpack, they wear the the, the veterans hats, and you know they drink the veteran coffee and wear the veterans t-shirts. So. You know, other generations, they have proudly assumed this veteran identity. Um, Maybe other generations seamlessly or a little bit more seamlessly plugged back into civil society. What do you think this sort of concept of of thanking veterans for the service and uh, sort of congratulating this identity, what does it do for people to complicate that when they move on to the rest of their lives? How do they subsume that into their identity without it being such a problem?
1: I think there's a huge amount of diversity in that. And when we talk about prior generations, I don't think it's completely that seamless, right? I mean, we have VFW halls and American Legion halls all over the country where veterans would go and hang out with other veterans. And to the extent that that's not necessarily being as replicated now, I th- it's it's complicated uh and yeah we have folks who completely own that identity like you're describing and then there are folks who don't who walk away entirely i know a number of women veterans who don't disclose that they were in the military at all um because It varies, some because they had negative experiences, others because they are concerned that it'll complicate their ability to get jobs or reintegrate because they are violating gender norms and that can make some people uncomfortable. Uh, For others, because they've just moved on. They have new identities that are more salient for them and it's not universal. I know plenty of women who are um, like me, happy to wear a pin and, and show up and say this is one component of my identity. I think the other thing that's really important to remember is that it's not like transition happens once and then it's over, Mm -hmm. right? Your transition can last for many years and go through multiple iterations. I left active duty, took a job that was about half prior service, and then have transitioned slowly into places where my my veteran identity is somewhat less salient. It's less of a, a component of what I do day to day.
2: Yeah, and I would just add, I think in, year, in years past, if you look at our war, our major wars, they were generationally defining events, um, even for people who did not serve. I mean, you know, just look at the Vietnam War. I mean, everyone of that age can tell you about the draft, tell you what their draft number was. I can't tell you how many, you know, book readings I've done where someone who's of the Vietnam ilk will come up to me and literally tell me, oh, my draft number was 362, you know, all these years later. These wars have not been generationally defining, and as such, I think a little bit of the effect on on the veterans, you know, I I mean, I'm a writer, and at one point on a panel, someone was asking me a question about, you know, the lost generation of the First World War and the history of war writing, and it occurred to me, no, I don't feel as though I'm part of a lost generation. I actually sort of feel more like I'm the lost part of a generation, Mm -hmm. and that when I look at the people I went to high school with, and we all sit around, you know I don't have that much in common with them because I kind of went off and did this other thing and so I think that has made the reintegration it's kind of like you have to then like you took this detour from your generation you have to replug in and again that's sort of been unique to these wars because of how they've been structured as uh, as sort of a something that's been on the side of what's gone on with w- w- within the larger American culture.
0: And so how does this work with with you two specifically like Kayla you you swim in uh... Academic and policy waters. Elliot, you swim in literature waters. Uh, so, how does your veteran identity both inform or distort what you try to do? Do you, do you feel like it's a it's a hindrance as well as a benefit? Like how how well are you able to get ahead of it if you want to, or how much of it is it just sort of back into your orbit? Um, you know,
2: one way it sort of comes. I mean.
0: One interesting thing that has
2: sort of come up in the books that I write is I think people have a tendency to immediately look at the books that I write and think of them as being directly informed by my wartime experience. And having written the books, I sort of know what I'm plumbing from. A lot of it is not my wartime <coughs> experience. And if you look at kind of the history of American literature, um, there are many great novels that we have never looked at as war novels that I would argue to you absolutely are war novels. Like uh, classic ones like The Great Gatsby. Right, Great Gatsby, Great American novel. Great Gatsby's a war novel. The First World War is all over that book. It's how Gatsby meets Daisy Buchanan. Another one I'd offer to you that no one considers a war novel, um, which certainly is, is The Catcher in the Rye. Catcher in the Rye is a war novel. First of all, if you know anything about J.D. Salinger, he landed in the first waves on D-Day, liberated the concentration camps, carried that experience around for his entire life. You know, if you go back, and I encourage you, take a look at that book and read the voice of Holden Caulfield that's so famous, his voice of youthful uh, disaffection. I read that voice now, and I'm like, I know that voice. You know, everybody's a phony, right? And he's walking around New York City. Like, that is the voice of a veteran. Uh, And if you read the last line of that book, uh, the last line of The Catcher of the Rye is, don't tell anybody anything, or else you wind up missing everyone. And I'm like, if that's not a guy dealing with some experiences, I don't know what is. Um, but when those books came out, that experience was so, just w- was so wide across the culture mm-hmm. that you could understand those books as just American books, because America had been through those wars. But now America has not been through these wars this sort of group of people on the side, the veterans have been through the wars. And so the books and the culture is kind of experienced through that lens.
1: Um, for me, I have used my personal experiences to inform the research I've done and also, I hope, to be able to communicate the results more clearly. So. I use my personal example to illustrate data that I'm talking about, mine and my husband's, who uh, who is severely injured in the war. And then uh, another way to look at it is that I am able to contextualize my personal experiences with the data. And I, I think that that's an important part of me being able to communicate like, what policy changes I think are important and why they're important in a way that humanizes them, because most folks don't connect emotionally with data and charts and graphs and uh, you know p-values, but when you tell it in terms of a story, like an individual story, they're like, oh, now I get it, and I can connect with that. So in that sense, my experience as a, as a vet, as a woman vet in particular, as the spouse to uh, a wounded warrior, like, that is a really essential part of the way that I work and the way that I communicate the results of my work
0: right and ellie you mentioned something about just like this sort of cultural understanding of like a veteran experience that has kind of shifted throughout the years of world war ii everyone sort of understood that maybe more uh more clearly than it did today so what does it say about our society that the, the biggest war stories or the biggest impactful things come from blockbuster movies where you know they sensationalize a lot of this stuff like at one point um you know american sniper was the highest grossing R-rated movie ever. Um, And people couldn't get enough of that story. And when I watched it, um, it took place in a part of Iraq that I was close to at a time that I was almost there, and I didn't recognize any of it. This sort of, it it had this sort of um, portrayal of very tough things to do, and the only decision was whether to do or not. But I thought the, the biggest problem was this sort of thing that defines our wars partly is, of this sort of gray, this amorphous, should I pull the trigger of this car full of civilians and maybe they have guns um, or not? And that wasn't clearly defined in the movie, um, even though that's something Chris Kyle struggled with. So we don't get these cultural touchstones unless they're violent, loud, blockbuster movies. So what is that doing to civil society's understanding um, and our empathy towards veterans in the military?
2: I think you, you touched on it before, right? It's yeah. that we experience veterans uh, with regards to two polarities, right? Yeah. Either they're heroes, supermen, you know, Navy SEALs, list the movie, or they're these completely broken people who've come back wracked with demons and guilt. Yeah. Demons and guilt. And I think we, I don't, I don't want to speak for you all, I would say the reality is probably, you know, somewhere in between. It's that muddy, nuanced middle that at this moment, our culture doesn't seem to be doing a very good job grappling with. and that, But that's not just for veterans, and we have to, I think, understand, like, we're one community, but we also reflect the broader undercurrents of all of American society. And I would, I would argue that right now, none of American society is doing a very good job of sort of understanding and clearly articulating kind of the reality, which is that, you know, we all sort of exist in this gray middle, and the gray middle is really the truth and the truth of experience, whereas I think so much of our culture and our debate is defined by, nope, there's just two polarities you have to pick.
1: And we also see in some of these films, it's this um, hyper-focus on a really, like, masculinized military, it's these these combat arms guys, Navy SEALs, snipers, and um, those are the stories that people are picking up on uh, combat arms are only about 15% of the total force. We're not telling the stories of the rest of the military. Uh, we have a flourishing of books written by women who have served, but they're not getting um, to date. They haven't you know, hit that blockbuster status when it comes to films yet. So again, we're only telling a small fraction of the diverse stories that actually exist.
0: So, And, and diversity is a great point because I think when, you know, if you looked in the mind's eye of someone, when you say a war veteran, they picture probably me and Elliot, you know, white guys. Maybe He's got with, a lot more hair. <laughs> <laughs> a lot more hair, uh, but also maybe you know, 50 years older, you know, wearing the old World War II hat, you know, and and grizzled and and uh, you know, melancholy. Um, but there's also you know more women serving than ever before. Um, there's other other points of diversity. So can you go through some of the things that you, people may say is surprising about the military and veterans? Uh,
1: I've found a lot of misconceptions about the education level of those who serve, which is higher than of the typical civilian. Um, And also folks don't necessarily realize that the military roughly represents the United States in terms of its racial ethnic makeup, Uh, women obviously not, we're a huge minority still in the military, only about 16% of the total force, 17% of the total force. Um, And also we now have uh lgbt folks serving openly in the military they've been in the military all along but now that's a little more open i think though that yeah the the typical person when they picture a vet they don't picture me uh they don't uh picture the full diversity of those who serve who really do come from american society and then we go back to our communities
2: I, i would just add too and and frequently when they look at the people who look like me who, and I was a combat arms guy for many years, they will immediately jump to assumptions about who you are. Like, for mm-hmm. instance, one of my very best friends in the Marines, who uh, is still in special operations and has been deploying since 2003, was in the Iraq invasion. It's actually in Afghanistan right now. Um, you would look at him, and all you would see was hard, grizzled combat operator. The reality was he was a creative writing major out of UVA, is still one of the best red guys I know, and we hang out and catch up. First thing, he'll be like, hey, Elliot, did you read the new Meg Whitman novel? Like, what do you think? Like, I don't know. Like, she, she's kind of losing it. Like, you know, they, they, like these are people every bit as diverse um, as anyone else in terms of their interests, who they are, their passions. And oftentimes, what's SAD, is all people can see is this sort of the monolith of, oh, the veteran, I, I know what that is.
1: And they make assumptions about our political leanings, too, for the same right. reasons.
2: And, but And that, I think, also goes past the veteran experience. I mean that's something the entire country is suffering from right now as we look at each other and we think we just know at a glance.
0: So what is it what is it like going into like book publishers' offices and talking with agents and people in in your community when they learn like what what are their assumptions about you when when you walk through the door?
2: Um, I, I, think, I think it's been, I think it's, listen, I think it's, it's helped me that I've been a veteran. I think people yeah. want to know those stories. And most people, once you sit down, like we're sitting down, are good people, and they want to connect. I'm a huge optimist about, you know, the human condition and what people can do when they actually are engaging with one another. Um, but I just think sometimes it takes a little bit more of that in-depth engagement and people just taking, uh, and taking a moment or a beat to, to, to just be, to be open.
1: I felt like when I first met my uh, publisher that, especially maybe because I'm prior enlisted, they were surprised I could string two coherent sentences together. I I really did. I felt like they were like, why would you? I've had a lot of people say, well, but why would you join the military if you had a bachelor's degree? Like, why would you do that? That total gap.
2: Well, what's, what's funny is people will often ask me, will say, is it interesting that you, you know, went from being, a Marine Special Operator to being a writer that seems so strange that someone who was a Marine Special Operator would become, would become a novelist. Mm-hmm. I say, actually, it's funny. You know, the people who've known me the longest look at me and say, isn't it so weird that you became a Marine? <laughs> <laughs> because you had these interests that predated your time in the Marine Corps. I listen, we all contain, all of us individually um, contain, contain multitudes. Um, and veterans are the same as anyone else in that regard.
0: So when it comes to veterans kind of figuring out what they want to do for the rest of their life, because, you know, we, I mean, we both did one enlistment, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, enlistments did you do, right? You were a commission. So, um, so I mean a big chunk of our lives comes afterward. Yeah. Right. And we have to figure out how, how we sort of plug this into our identity and who we become. Um, so what, what can veterans do based on your experiences to, to smooth those edges out, because I think some people have a problem with this jump. You know, uh, a friend of mine put it that, you know, integration is sort of like a space shuttle coming back into orbit. You know, if you, if you hit it right, the tiles will get warm, but you'll be all right. But if you come in like this, you'll burn up. Um, so there's a lot writing on how you make those months and those years after your service count. What can, what can veterans do to make sure they, they land right?
1: I encourage veterans to not isolate, like, go ahead and join organizations, uh, civilian, veteran, military, uh, blended, uh, but just don't isolate yourself. And also, don't hesitate to take advantage of the resources that are out there. Like my husband got blown up in the war, and when he left active duty, he's like, "Oh well, I mean, I don't know if I should do this or that or the other because it's for guys who are really hurt. Like I'm still, I, I still have all my limbs, so like I, I'm not hurt enough." I'm like, uh, "No, go ahead and." Do the things, right? All these resources exist. Don't hesitate to take advantage of them, to uh, connect with people, to connect with yourself, and to, to smooth that reentry, as you put it, by having some supports available to you.
2: Uh, and I think, you know, it's um, it's a process of redefinition. I think one of the things that's challenging is that the military so clearly gives you an identity, I mean you put it on every day when you put your uniform on, everyone knows who everybody else is and their jobs and all of that and you you leave that all behind and go into something where your identity and who you are is, is far murkier. But trying to proactively think about and craft that identity for yourself and think about your purpose and where you're gonna derive that derive that purpose from because I think we derive our happiness from our sense of purpose in this world. And when uh, when someone is reintegrating or coming in, you're basically you're repurposing yourself and trying to substitute the meaning maybe you got in the military with a new sense of meaning in your life. Um, and proactively thinking about that, I, I, I think, can be very useful.
0: Great. Well, I think we could talk about this all day, but we're, we're just out of time. So I want to thank uh, Kayla and Elliot for this discussion. And uh, I'd like to turn things over to our sponsor. Thanks for listening.